Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is independent audio producer, NPR contributor, and National Geographic explorer, Bill McQuay. First of all, if you're a songwriter and signed to BMI, this might not be something that you want to hear. Private equity firm New Mountain Capital is looking to buy performance rights organization Broadcast Music Incorporated, which is BMI, and that's to a tune of $1.7 billion, as reported by Billboard. New Mountain Capital has invested in industries that include software, business services, logistics, and financial services, among others. Not much in the music sector, though. BMI first announced that it was selling itself in October last year as it transitioned from a not-for-profit entity to a for-profit company. Before switching to a for-profit model, BMI reported that it collected $1.573 billion in 2022, and then it distributed about $1.47 billion of that to writers and publishers. Now, as you might expect, many songwriters and publishers have questioned the company's move, despite BMI stating that it will enable it to spend some money on developing technology and infrastructure that will help support them better. As you can imagine, songwriters are not happy about this. They weren't happy when the association transitioned to a for-profit company last year, and they're not happy about the prospects of an acquisition now. There is no BMI without the songwriters. BMI does not own the copyrights or any other assets. It's just a licensing entity for copyrights that's owned by the songwriters and, by extension, their publishers. Songwriters rightfully feel that they have a right to be informed about these decisions beforehand and how it impacts them. Just for comparison, Most of the music industry's collection agencies around the world are not-for-profit organizations that are owned by their members. That's usually some combination of artists and songwriters, record labels, and or publishers. BMI is unusual in that it's the only one that's actually owned by a group of broadcasters. That was established in the 1930s as a rival to the existing ASCAP. This deal isn't done yet, as New Mountain Capital has entered an exclusive window just to look it over. It's entirely possible that BMI's writers could still move to shut the deal down, however. If you're a BMI songwriter, I'd really like to hear what you think about this. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now here's something interesting that has a lot of good and a lot of bad in it. Music and audio manufacturers are facing a glut of product. During the pandemic, there was a huge demand for all things musical, and as a result, both manufacturers and retailers sold out of their music and audio stock very, very quickly. Manufacturers then had a hard time ramping up production due to supply chain issues as retailers flooded their suppliers with orders. 
With all these orders, manufacturers then started cranking out products at a crazy pace, only to find that many of those initial orders are now canceled. A lot of that was because music retailers double-ordered, hoping to speed up the process, and then they found out when things returned to normal after the COVID lockdown, customers are now spending their money on other things besides gear. The unhappy result has been an inventory glut on an unprecedented scale. This is choking the retail channel, filling warehouses, and piling up in containers and shipping docks all over the world. It's gotten so bad that music gear imports from Asia are down about 75%, which is even worse than during the 2008 financial crisis. According to Music Trades, acoustic and electric guitar imports were down by over 60%. Digital pianos were off by 68%. Acoustic pianos off by over 40%, and live sound products down by 20%. The only category that showed any improvement at all was bowed stringed instruments. That was up by about 12%. So now, cash-strap suppliers are selling direct to consumers online at almost wholesale prices, or they're pushing B-stock products on Reverb or Amazon marketplaces, or they're bending over backwards to have mass merchants like Walmart and Costco to have them stock up. As a result... A number of independent retailers have already gone out of business after being crushed by way too much inventory and reduced demand. All that said, never underestimate the resilience of the musical instrument business. Over the past 60 years, there have been three sizable military engagements, seven recessions, a financial crisis, and numerous other calamities, yet the music products industry has consistently grown larger and prospered. If you're on the hunt for new gear, now might be the best time to get a deal ever. My guest today is Bill McQuay, who's an independent audio producer, NPR contributor, National Geographic explorer, and founder of Ecolocation Sound. Before starting Ecolocation Sound, Bill was supervising audio engineer for the Library of National Sound at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and an audio producer for the lab's multimedia group. Prior to joining the Lab of Ornithology, Bill was an NPR sound engineer and technical director for NPR programs that include Morning Edition, Weekend Saturday and Sunday, Performance Today, and NPR's Radio Expeditions. Bill led NPR's early surround sound recording effort and was his first technical director. He was also the mastering engineer for NPR Classic CDs, and he's worked on many other 360-degree interactive projects. Along the way, Bill has won a National Academy of Sciences Award for the year's Best Science Reporting, a Grammy for the NPR recording of the Benjamin Britten War Requiem, the Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Journalism Award, and an Individual Artist Award from the Maryland State's Arts Council. During the interview, we spoke about telling stories with sound, going around the world to capture audio, helping scientists use sound to understand the world, his setup for recording spatial audio, and how sound is determining if insects are disappearing or not, and so much more. I spoke with Bill via Zoom from his office in Ithaca, New York. Let's start where I usually start with these things. Let's go back to when you first got in the audio business. Oh, you know, I think that I actually got in the audio business the first time I got turned on by sound, quite frankly. You know, it's when I wanted, I thought, oh, this is so cool. And that, of course, was in, not of course, but that was in grade school, I guess seventh grade. The Beatles came on, right? Yeah. And it was so exciting. And I thought, I got to get into that, like a lot of us. And I took guitar lessons, played rock and roll through high school. 
And while I was in high school, I met a, I had an art teacher who was great. And he actually turned me on to uh, a world of sound that I had never experienced. People like Barrio and John Cage and Morton Feldman and all those people, right? And I thought, geez, a whiz, there is so much going on in the world that makes sound. And it's so cool if you just kind of turn in, tune into it. Uh, so um, I did. But because I was with an art teacher and he was really, really important to me, I first went to art school, became a, you know, started painting and was doing that. And that quite wasn't working out. And I thought, well, maybe I need to add time to, to my expressions here. So I went to film school for a year. So I went to art school for a year and I went to film school for a year at NYU. And that wasn't happening for me either. It just didn't feel right. Uh, and I had also, of course, during that time in the late 60s, we were all really politically active. And I ended up going to Antioch College that had a uh, social action campus that was devoted to uh, uh, public access video. And so I got involved in the early days of guerrilla television and doing all of that. And that was fun. And uh, that led me, believe it or not, completely out of the art world and into uh Community organizing. I became a community organizer, got deep into the into Baltimore politics and got knocked around a lot and did a lot of knocking around myself. But it was clear to me and I was, I think, quite good at it. But it became clear to me and to the woman I met and eventually married that it was killing me. And what I started doing was trying to go back and find something that was giving me relief that that ha, uh, touched another part of me. And I went back to sound and I began studying composition privately. And my wife, who we were soon to get married, said, you got to get out of that politics. It's just killing you. And if you're going to marry me, you're going to have to do that. And then she said, if you go back to school, now I'm 36 when she says this. You go back to school and you study that music. I'll support us until you finish. Wow. So I did. I applied uh, in a dual degree program at the Peabody Conservatory, which gave you a degree in recording arts, but you also had to have a music major. And I was, did composition. So it was a five-year program. I get out of the five-year program and I knew or had a pretty good idea that if I was to complete that program... I could get a gig. I could get a job with NPR because it turns out that that program at the Peabody Conservatory was a feeder program to NPR in Washington, D.C. And anybody who graduated from that program and made an application, put in an application, NPR generally got picked up. And that got me into the quote, the professional world of recording and then getting paid for playing with sound. And, uh, and I did, I completely, I went in there and did all the grunt work that I could do and anything I could do to work with sound, to get it out into the field. Eventually, they let me get out in the field, and I ended up going to uh, the Arctic and theoretically was supposed to go to the North Pole on part, in part of a program series that was called Radio Expeditions. Now, I know you talked to Josh Rogerson, yeah. right? Josh came in after I'd been there for a while. Josh, is, as you know, is an amazing amazing sound engineer in fact i was quite jealous there's this young guy coming in i'm like i'm 42 when he i think or 43 when he comes in there's this young guy he's got all the chops could do anything and is a nice guy on top of it but anyway 
So along with Josh and a handful of other engineers, I worked on the radio expeditions program for about 10 years. We went all over the world recording. While I was technical director of that program, I initiated the surround sound project. And we began going into the field and doing all our recordings in the field in quad, which you ended up uh, sampling some years later, I recall, when we tried to convert those and did convert those to 5.1 surround. And we used those in various theatrical gatherings that NPR had. Anyway, I did that and stayed with NPR for 15 years until one day it became pretty clear that NPR was no longer going to be able to do the quality sound for field recording and telling stories that are sound rich. The business had changed and they eliminated the radio expeditions program and engineers stopped being sent out into the field with uh, the hosts. And the exciting jobs in the business at NPR became less and less available. So I had met people at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology during my work with the Radio Expedition series. I traveled to places where they had been, like in Central African Republic, where Katie Payne was doing her work with uh, studying the infrasound communication of elephants. So I made contact with those people and maintained contact with them. And they said, hey, Bill, we got a job opening up here. It's our uh, senior audio engineer overseeing the sound collection. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology has the world's largest collection of, quote, natural sound. Well, I mean, that's sound by non-humans is what that means. All sound is natural. (laughs) You know, even our electronic sounds are natural. So I did that for, I oversaw that program for seven years. In the meantime, I did a few more stories with NPR, uh, working with my good buddy, Chris Joyce, who was an amazing science reporter uh, at NPR. We did that. And then I transferred over to the multimedia group and spent, I think, three more years doing just audio productions for them. And uh, we did a series that got this uh, science award from National Academy of Sciences about how scientists learned to use sound to understand the world, which was something they had not done before people like Katie Payne and Roger Payne and Chris Clark and others. Science really didn't think you could get much from sound, right? It's also visually oriented. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in the recent work I did, I have an interview with Katie Payne and she says, <clears throat> most scientists are adults and adults spend their time training each other to be more and more visual. And of course, so much of the world survives on non-human animals survive on sound. You think of all the marine mammals they really can't see, right? Yeah, yeah. It's all sound for them. And so many other animals, insects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So <clears throat> I uh, tried to do some of that work at uh, the Lab of Ornithology and they supported that, but then it came time for me to leave. Uh, I had been there 10 years and I wanted to just set up a business myself and do my own programming and focus on the things that I really like to do. And I did that. And that brings me kind of up to date now. That's a lot. (laughs) I even have notes here. I'm trying. (laughs) The interesting thing to me is right from the beginning, you understood that you wanted to go out in the field and field recording was important to you. Yeah. And still is. and, uh, and And it still is. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm really tired of hearing people and the sounds we make, quite honestly. I mean, I did music recording. I mean, I have a Grammy for 
classical music recording and that. And I, and I love that. And obviously it was very influential on me. But I was looking for something that didn't have the sounds that we produce as the dominant sound in the field, which is what we live with day in and day out. You can't go pump gas today without them blaring some commercial and some usually terrible pop song over their little speakers at the gas pump. I mean, it's just, so I was looking for ways to get away from that and do recording that could be both dynamically rich, but also diverse in terms of the sounds that were available. And that meant going into the field with these scientists to really remote locations, the North Pole and Central African Republic and the Himalayas and, you know, a variety of places where the intrusion of human sound was more or less limited to the human voice or bells or instruments that they created. Um, and that really drove me to want to do things in the field. And that led me to working with these amazing scientists and working with these amazing scientists opened up a whole new dimension of the world to me because I began to understand why these animals are making these sounds, how the environment is affecting them. And so many, I mean, we're actually a new species on this planet, right? And these other organisms have been here for millions and millions and millions of years and have developed these really sophisticated methods of using sound to survive, find mates, find food, avoid predators, et cetera, et cetera. And that opened for me a motivational aspect to sound in the world that I really was not that aware of. I was just originally wow that sounds cool i love that sound oh it's quiet oh you hear that bell in the distance oh you hear the wind rustling through the trees that's beautiful and it is but then being able to peel back or go deeper into that and understand what is taking place what the evolution of those things are how they got there and how sound helped them evolve into these species that now occupy so much of the world till we get rid of them is why field recording has been so important. But to take that another step, you understood that there is more than what we're getting from our traditional recordings. Like you said, you started with quad and, and then eventually you moved into, well, let's get spatial with this. And you were right. in it very early. Right, right, right. Because I wanted to convey for others, as best I could, the excitement that I found and the awe and wonder of a world that most of us don't pay much attention to because as natural, we're, we're most focused on the sounds that we make, right? That's what's important. We're a social species. We got to know what each other's doing. But the experience of sound in the world and the sounds of the world have become so important to me. It has meant so much to me and has opened the world as a really awesome place. I wanted to be able to share that. And I guess I was also saying, hey, I, I'm not crazy. <laughs> this is cool. Just listen. And, and I guess I hope that answers the, uh, the question you were getting to. When you first started, you had one. Now let's just talk gear for a little bit because I'm really curious. You had one setup. How has that evolved over time? And I'm talking about, you know, being spatial with this. Right, right. When we did, when I shifted us over to recording quad for Radio Expedition, we didn't have multi-track portable recorders, digital recorders. We were all doing digital at that time. 
So we all would take, uh, what was it, the... Um, it was those Sony DAT machines, right? Those handheld of the... Uh, oh, yeah. I remember those. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What was it? Sony TCD7s. Yes. <laughs> so we would take a handful of TCD7s and Mike Pre's that we uh, found were better than, of course, what was in the TCD7. And would gang and would record quad. Uh, I use the generally use the IRT cross, mm-hmm. the spaced omnis with uh, Shep's MK2s, which I still think. I mean, I've used ambisonic mics in first and second order. The spatial characteristics of uh, those spaced omnis still, I think, best represent what we as humans hear mm-hmm. in an environment. Right? So anyway, we we would take those DAP machines and then we'd go back. At that time, we were working with Sonic Solutions, which had that point was the high-end digital audio workstation at uh, NPR and then everywhere else for that matter. Um, anyway, we would then go back and we would sync up, you know, <laughs> the record the, the the two tracks, the four tracks from the two different DAT machines, and then we'd have to do some time slippage and stuff like that. But that's how that's that's how that started. And then I got myself a 7088T, a used one, which. Those things are tanks. <laughs> you can kick them up and down. You can drop them, and they're amazing. And Sound Devices is an amazing company. I bought the thing used. I wanted them to check it out. Hey, it's new. Bring it up to factory spec. Change the hard drive. Sent it to them. They checked it out. They they replaced a few minor parts. Sent it back to me, free. Charged me nothing. Wow. Now that's a company, right? They didn't get anything out of that purchase because it was used. Yeah. Someone had already kicked over the dollars to them, right? And I thought, now that's a company that I'll stick with because they know how to treat people and they are as interested in good sound and good recording as I am. Yeah. Which is also the reason I did decide to go to the lab of ornithology years and years ago because it was clear to me working with these scientists that they were as interested in the highest quality sound possible. In fact, they were using sonic solutions Hmm. for their mastery of sounds. And so that gets me to not only the spatial audio, but why quality is so important. And I think we know from a variety of tests that are coming out and have been coming out for the last couple of years that the better quality sound, and that's not easy to uh, accomplish nowadays when we all got these, you know, our phones and this, that, but the, the higher the quality of the sound, meaning the greatest dynamic range and the greatest frequency response for even the most general listener is an experience they're willing to stick with a little bit longer, right? It's just, it doesn't fatigue the ear. It's got lots going on. It entertains the ear and keeps the mind active. So we started backing up with those handheld DAP machines, high quality mic pre's that we attach to them. And I continued to use that setup for years. I added uh, DPA 4060, those little microphones, which were key for a lot of recordings. I mean, when I when you're on the back of elephants tracking down rhinos in Nepal, they're not going to let you hold up your mic array, right? Yeah, they're just right. not going to. So I'd attach them to my vest. And in Tibet, when we were recording in areas where journalists are not allowed and we were able to get to certain locations... I'd mount them on my baseball hat. Mm. And we got some amazing, amazing recordings that way. Those are, I mean, they're noisy, but 
their low frequency, their low end response is really, really good. Yeah. And something I learned in that process, and so much of what I know and still use, comes from the knowledge base of others. <laughs> there was another engineer at NPR, Flon Williams, and he said, Bill, try out these 4060s, which I thought that were cool. He says, now, Bill, you're going to go to the Arctic. So this is my first radio expeditions experience. He said, you might want to think about taking a RIA, an MS pair, using the Rycote blimp, right? And then placing those DPA-60s inside it with the MS pair. So you put a little, you put a coat hanger in there, you attach the DPAs in there, you suspend it underneath where the MS pair is, right? The MKH-4030s was what we are using at the time. And if you just, instead of pointing that, that Zeppelin forward, you turn it sideways, you've got spaced omnis in a right coat. Hmm, yeah. Sound like. And so I often would just, I'd tell, I'd say, hey, let's let's stop here for a moment. Let me reconfigure my rig here. Let me turn this around. And so much of my recording in these remote locations when I wasn't on the back of elephants were done with those DPA 4060s inside that Zeppelin blimp. And then when we do interviews or something that needed more focused attention, I would turn it to the MS pair. Yeah. And I did that for years. And then when I went on, I did a story about Tibetan pilgrimage where I was not only the sound recordist, which I had been up to that point. I was only doing sound recording. I was working with these amazing engineers, and I could focus on the sound. Well, I, they sent me on this uh, expedition to for five weeks to trek around with thousands of Tibetans around this sacred mountain in the eastern Himalayas. And so I attached four DPA 4060s to my front and back as we went through and we marched around this mountain, did all this recording. I mean, I had some, uh, some uh, space dummies that I would use. I had an MS pair that I would use occasionally, but mostly it was recorded that way. And that was still using two DAT machines. But now that I got the 78AT, that's all changed. For your latest show, which is very cool, by the way, oh, that, that is really awesome. And it's you, it's your show. It's right. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it sails or sinks <laughs> on what I did. Well, it's very cool. And the premise, especially, I like the fact that science sometimes is not the overriding factor for an article or a headline. And we see yeah. this all the time where there, there's clickbait headlines that are, <laughs> are just for that clickbait and aren't really based in anything that's useful. You know, the fact is the whole thing about the insects going away, and perhaps they're not. Right. But trying to find that out using the scientific method and documenting it the way you did is fascinating. So how'd you oh, come up with that? Thanks. So that process actually began over five years. Of, oh, shoot. <laughs> it took me almost five years to produce the thing. So it goes back at least eight years. A friend of mine who's featured in, in, in the podcast, Dr. Laurel, Laurel Symes. I met Laurel Symes at one of the sound recording workshops we used to conduct in the Sierra Nevadas every summer when I was with the Lab of Ornithology. And I thought, wow, here's a really bright young scientist who's as interested in sound as I am, but in a very, very different way. Mm -hmm. She was using it to investigate the evolution of species. So I stayed in touch with her, became very, very good friends. And uh, she began doing work in Panama, tracking 
hippies in South Session, you know, from listening to the podcast, called Katie Dits. Mm-hmm. It's on a small tropical island or rainforest island in Panama, in the middle of the Panama Canal, actually. I was just there, by the way, the Panama Canal. And, you had uh, a, a few months ago, yeah. Is that but, right? Yeah. Panama is an amazing place. And this island, by the way, was used to be uh, a, a, almost a mountaintop. It was a very, very large hill. And uh, when they they had to create the Gatun Lake to connect the canals, the north and south. So they flooded this area. And what was a large hill or mountaintop became an island. And it trapped all these animals on there. And the Smithsonian moved in and said, hey, this is a great place to study tropical species. Anyway. That's where Laurel and this team of researchers, mostly from Dartmouth at the time, and then eventually from Cornell, where she's now the assistant director at the Yang Center for Conservation Bioacoustics. Uh, they were tracking the evolution of signaling in these insects called katydids. On this island, it's a tiny island, there are a hundred species of these insects, katydids. Now we have katydids here, right? Yeah. In the summer. Well, they've got a hundred species of them. Right? Wow. And those insects, as, as I found out doing the podcast, talking to scientists, they've been making sound in the same way for 250 million years. Now, all the species that those scientists recorded, species that are record, that are emitting signals in the ultrasonic range, so there's this whole world of sound, right? Yeah. Bats and insects singing that we don't even know about. So they're recording these insects in the ultrasonic range. And they showed me, demonstrated for me, well, if we slow these down, listen to what you can hear. You can hear these amazing, diverse collection of voices. So you may have a hundred species and they all be made, all are making sound in the same way, rubbing their wings together, just like all crickets and all. So crickets and katydids and grasshoppers all make sound the same way. Mm-hmm. I've been doing it for this millions of years. But they all sound different. Their voices are all different. And so investigating, well, if it's the same mechanism, why are these signals so divergent? What is the evolution? of? How do they get there? And that's what they were studying. And I thought, that's amazing because it's sound. It's about the evolution of life, an important species for this forest because so many animals eat them. Let me document that. And I did for some years. And then the headlines began to appear. The insect apocalypse, insects are dying off. That, that, that. I thought, oh, shoot, is that right? That's terrible. Well, as I began to investigate, eh, science isn't exactly clear about what is happening because they're so understudied. The most diverse species in the planet is the least studied species insects, right? Millions of species are unknown, really, to science. Uh, so I, it also so happened that the scientists discovered in their research who is making what and when and where they are in the forest. And if you know, as one of the scientists in the podcast describes, if you know how often the animal sings and how far that signal travels in the environment, you can begin to discern population density by the sounds that you're collecting in the forest. And that becomes a tool unavailable to scientists who are looking at this question, what insects are or are not disappearing? Because they have so little data, as we discovered. Scientists are making claims that the data just is not sufficient 
to claim worldwide law. It might be, but we don't know. Yeah. So this tool using sound with artificial intelligence that can scan that sound and begin to discern, oh, within, I think, 90, 90 degree accuracy now. Oh, that's this species. And that's this number of species. So now we've got a tool, an inexpensive tool, that can be deployed without people being around, that can begin to give you a long-term view of who is singing, when they're singing, and how many are singing. And that allows us to begin to discern, well, what is actually happening? Certainly, insects, like everything else on the planet, is undergoing great stress right now. No question. No question. But those stressors are human-created, primarily. And if we know what is happening and where it's happening, we can then address that. And that great uh, science reporter I talked to, Emma Maris, right from the Atlantic, said that very thing. Look, a lot of these problems are specific to specific species in specific locations. So we can go in there and begin to address that. And that's where the whole insect apocalypse narrative for me falls short and in fact, in some ways is damaging. Yes, it alerts us to the importance of insects, but people just think, oh my God, all these insects and they're all dying. There's just, what can we do about that? I mean, it's out of my hands. Well, it's not. <laughs> Here's what I noticed. So going through the, the canal, it's, it takes 11 hours about to get through. And I was shocked at how quiet it was. The lack of animals. No one could tell me why this was happening. Now, some supposition was, okay, the spray for malaria to keep the, the mosquito population down is harming every, the whole insect world there. But I don't know. It was birds. It was it was everything. It was dead quiet. Well, I think that, that brings up, an, uh, yeah, that's a very, very important point. But the thing we need to look at is the environment that we're going through. So you're on a ship, I assume, yeah, right through yeah. the right? A fairly large one, I assume. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. It makes a hell of a lot of noise. You may not think so, and it's making a lot of noise. Just the low frequency alone. Anyway, I'm, I'm not saying that that's the, the cause of the lack, right? But I am saying that the human presence that is obvious when you're going through the Panama Canal, when they cut that trench connecting the, uh, the two oceans, they did some serious altering of that environment. And so it may be that the animals that had been there have been driven so far away merely because the number of people that are around. And this is certainly things that we have seen in a variety of other locations. The study in the Crayfield region in Germany, and a really important study, but they made claims that in order to get people's attention, they made claims that are not quite, they're accurate for that particular region, but they expounded, expanded to, you know, this is something we're going to need to look at worldwide. Well, it's true, we do, but they can't make a claim that it's uh, that's what's happening to all animals. And in that region, to get, to get to your point, those nature reserves where that study was conducted are surrounded by human agricultural land. And that is impacting the presence of insects through a pec uh, pesticide, fragmentation of the environment, et cetera. So there's no question that our input, our impact and the Panama Canal's impact on the biodiversity of the areas is so severe. I mean, we've got invasive species coming from the one ocean into the other. So that may be, I'd, we'd have to look at all those factors 
how many people are around, you know, what was the disruption land, all this, to see what is the impact. Because I'll tell you, on Barrow, Colorado Island, as you heard, which is in the middle of the Panama Canal, there are all kinds of animals, thousands, millions of species living on that tiny island, making sound. The one thing you mentioned was the low frequency that comes from all the ship traffic that's going through. And of course, that's something, you know, I didn't think about until you mentioned it. And yeah, that would be something that would signal, okay, let's get away from here. To well, all of us, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. You know, that's the greatest thing about movies, right? When they want to scare you, they pump in that subharmonic. Right, right. And you go, oh my God. You know, you mentioned about infrasonics before. And I'm wondering what you use to capture that. The recordings that you heard that I had were all recorded with those MK2s. They go down really low. The I was told by a scientist who's done a lot of research on elephant communication, the ones that are creating so much sound in the infrasonic, that their most important signal is at the is at the third harmonic, actually, which we could begin to hear. Mm-hmm. And that's what you were hearing with mine. But I know that the scientists were using one of the early earthwork microphones that I think went down to two hertz, I think. It's something that low. As you heard Katie Payne, when she went, she took, an, uh, back in the 70s, took a Nagra reel-to-reel recorder. And I don't know what microphone they gave her. It's before my time. But she recorded the elephant infrasound, which you couldn't hear until they sped it up. And it brought all that sound. So I've only used our standard microphones to record those sounds. How about the ultrasonic range? I'm sure that there's a lot going on up there as well, and that'd be tougher to capture. A lot. And these scientists, they had the technology. I didn't. Right? And they, I forget the brand. It's a, it's a especially, it's a, it's a highly specialized microphone array that they used. And they were recording at 300 kilohertz, I think was their sampling rate. Wow. So we're looking at 150, right? Yeah. Uh, that, we're, that, that, are, that it's being recorded. Only when we slowed those down, now the sounds that you hear in my podcast, they're 120th of the original speed. And I used uh, my friends at uh, Symbolic Sound, right? Who developed the pack of rain and all of those things. They wrote me a program that resampled things instantaneously so I could I could have us glissandi down to from the highest to the lowest frequency that I wanted. So 120th of that is what we're hearing in order to experience the diverse sounds that those insects are making. Otherwise, we're oblivious to it. There is so much sound going on in the world that we're we're oblivious to partly because it's above or below our threshold, but also because we're just not paying attention, mostly. I think. That's supposed to happen, I think. Everybody in their own lane, <laughs> so to speak. I, I, I would agree with you because that helped us survive, unfortunately, because our species, as, as, as new as we are to the planet, our footprint is so large and our impact on the environment is so significant that we can't function that way anymore if we hope to survive. We have to open up to what's happening outside of our sphere of influence. Or not our sphere of influence, what we tend to focus on. Our own stuff, our own talk. 
because our impact is 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 universal in the sense of the planet's life, right? So that's why I think field recording and bringing these sounds to people say, look, there's a lot going on here and something's being communicated. These animals aren't just making sound. They're actually using that sound for a reason. And any impact we are having in that sound is affecting them. And but we can still at the same time use that sound, begin to understand those species and track what may be happening to them because of the footprint that we have on this planet. So I, I agree. Yeah, we we listen to each other because that's what we need to survive. But we can't just do that anymore because we're not going to survive. Well, luckily we have people like you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Helping direct yeah, us. Don't I wish. <laughs> well, no, it's really true, Bill. Last question for you. What's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody just imparted to you? Oh, God, I'm going to sound so old and curmudgeonly. For me, coming back to sound, which is where I had the greatest feeling and the greatest passion. And I discovered, for me, following that passion has opened the world and provided all the opportunities that I've had, and I've had many. So if you have that, I believe, if you have that passion, that passion is going to get you through some, some lean times for sure. But if it's something you got to do, what Miles Davis said, that's an addiction. What can you do, right? You got to do it. If it's like that for you, that's what you should do. And that's where you should focus your attention. And things will open up. The doors will open up. And if they don't, at least you're doing something that you enjoy. And life's tough enough. So do something that you really like and find a way to do it. And if you do, in my experience, the doors open and opportunities present themselves. You can find out more about Bill and Ecolocation Sound at ecolocationsound.com. That's ecolocationsound, E-C-O-L-O-C-A-T-I-O-N, sound, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music news, audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select a podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 